0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.
2: Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time.
1: <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.
3: The reality we live in be a very strange place most of the time fact being stranger than fiction how we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time this is inquiries of our reality with shane jones Hey guys, and welcome to the show. Today, I have an awesome guest that I had the pleasure to meet at CryptidCon. But uh, before we can get into that, and I know that you guys will love this conversation, we got to knock out all the front of the house stuff real quick. So if you guys don't mind reviewing or sharing the show, I definitely appreciate it. It's a good way to help the show grow and get it seen by more people. Uh, Five-star reviews, Absolute best, and I would love to read them on the show. If you guys say something nice with that, uh, if you guys don't want to have to type anything out, you can always hop on to Spotify and just leave a five star review there. If you guys aren't following the show on social media, definitely go and uh, give the show a follow. There, you'll get some updates on anything cool going on with the show, any new episodes, all that good stuff. Uh, if you want to pop in and have some awesome conversation with some awesome people, uh, I'm building up the Telegram and the Discord, so definitely feel free to pop in there and. Uh, Join the conversation. Uh, If you guys are interested in being a guest on the show, if you're an author, researcher, experiencer, or anybody that's just into some open minded, weird concepts, I would love to have a conversation with you guys and I'd love to have you on the show. Uh, You can get a hold of me through email if you are interested in doing that. Uh, The email is inquiries of our reality podcast at outlook.com. If you guys want to check out some more awesome stuff that I do, uh, you guys can go and check out Bizarre Encounters. That's my other show that I do with my two awesome co hosts, Orin and Jenny. Always expanding and always making new shows, new mini shows, all that stuff. So if you want to keep tabs on all of the other interesting stuff that I do, you guys can go and check out Open Minds Media. If you guys want to support the show, you can always do so through Patreon. There you will get live access to shows, early access to shows, and something that I've been doing called the Live Replay, where if you can't make it to the live show, uh, I throw up the video so that you guys can check it out the night of, hopefully. Uh, if you guys want to donate to the show in a different way, you can always do so through Red Circle, Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, all of that stuff goes towards, uh, helping to build up the show, get some new equipment, update equipment. Uh, At some point soon, I know that I'm going to have to upgrade my laptop because this one's starting to get a little bit old. So hopefully that's something I can build up and hopefully do for the future in order to keep everything running as smooth as possible. If you guys want to get yourself some awesome merchandise for the show, uh, you can go and check out the Open Minds Media Merch Store. There you will find merch for Increase of Our Reality, Bizarre Encounters, Bite Size Bizarreties all of the weird other little sideshows that I do. And I'm sure that there will always be expanding new stuff being thrown on there in the future. If you guys want to go and get yourself some awesome cryptid merchandise, go and check out Crypto Theology. Joe is always expanding and adding new designs. His newest one that I've seen is a few different uh, Hodag ones. Uh, Also, I think he added some new Loveland Frog designs. So if you guys are interested in that, definitely go and check it out. Everything that I've referenced, all available under the link tree in the show description. So uh, definitely go and check that out. And with that, welcome to the show. The Bigfoot naturalist, John Hickenbottom. How's it going today? Oh, not too bad. How about you? Not too bad, man. Absolute pleasure to finally have you come on to the uh, solo show, because of course you uh, came on Bizarre Encounters at one point, but we didn't get a chance to have that one-on-one conversation since we met at CryptidCon, so we're glad we finally got around to it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, me too. Me too. It It was a long time coming.
3: So uh, for anybody that isn't familiar with who you are or what you do, uh, why don't you kind of give them an idea about what exactly a naturalist is?
2: Yeah, so I uh, I've worked for the Ohio Department of Natural Resources since 2012, um, and I've worked for other um, I've worked for other municipal organizations and private organizations as a naturalist. So, as a naturalist, we're basically um, educators. We're sort of part biologist, part uh, educator. So, a big part of our job a big part of my job is to take abstract concepts and ideas things like ecology um you know biological concepts uh interrelationships out in nature things like that um things that are pretty academic um and break them down into things that you know a general public visitor can digest and actually take home with them like actually you know, break concepts and ideas down into smaller digestible pieces that you can then um, carry with you after your, your visit to a park. Because um, no one wants to go on a vacation and get an academic lecture on ecology, right? I mean, you don't, you don't want to go to a park on vacation for a weekend in the summer and set through a, you know, long-winded academic um, lecture about whatever forest ecology in the Eastern Appalachian hardwood forests. But um, if we can get you to go on a hike um, where I can break some of those concepts down into things that you can relate. I mean, I, I usually try to like my target group is often like third through fifth grade. You know what I mean? And that's for everybody. Like if I can shoot for, if I can make someone understand something at a fifth grade level, you know, they can take that home with them and they'll remember that. And that's kind of what I, uh, what I shoot for is like that sort of education. Like I'm not doing now, if a special group calls me, you know, I, I've had, there's like a conservation club at a local college that I'll, I'll go talk to sometimes, you know? Um, and that is a little different. Like I'll go talk to them. I already know. I know what their baseline is. Cause that's part of the, that's kind of part of the art form that you have to learn is to meet people where they're at, you know? Um, So I kind of know, like, okay, conservation club at a a school with a strong biology program. I kind of know what my baseline is. So I can go, like, talk about really academic stuff and things like that. But if a church group calls me, you know, like a rural church group calls me and they want to learn about wildflowers, you know, that's going to be a little bit of a different program. Like, I'm going to break things down a little differently, you know, or a scout group. If a scout group calls... And once, you know, um, once a program on identifying animal tracks, you know, that's going to be a little bit different of, a, of an approach than what I would what I would do for, say, you know, someone, so a group that has a different baseline, you know. So a big part of my job is taking, like, these sort of abstract concepts and breaking them down, you know, into tangible things that you can then take home. Because uh, so much of nature is intangible. And I think that's part of the reason why um biology can be intimidating you know like biology and ecology can be intimidating because not a lot of it you can measure i mean if we if we even think about like we don't have the hardware to think about um deep time you know uh you learn in school that the dinosaurs have been extinct for 65 million years you know but what is 65 million years (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um It's really hard for us to conceptualize that, right? Um, Because we basically can measure things in in human lifetimes, you know. Uh, You can kind of guess, like, okay, my great-grandfather's father might have been in the Civil War. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Like, we can sort of conceptualize things on human timelines, you know. But thinking about, like, geologic timelines... Uh, we don't really have the hardware for it. It's really hard and it's really intimidating to think about deep time, you know? Um, So those, I try to eliminate that sort of intimidation um, and I'll break things down so that you can take it home. I I don't want to unload on a park visitor, you know what I mean? Like unload all this information, which is always a danger in this particular job where like uh, you ask, um, you ask me a question about why is the sandstone, red in this area and then it's like taking a drink from a fire hydrant you know what i mean um just bless the information on all him. this st- <laughs> that's <laughs> all- yeah that's always a danger you know um so breaking it down and trying to uh, trying to identify you know um i mean for instance i know before we started recording we talked a little bit about like evolution you know knowing my audience is another thing like we get pretty good at knowing our audience Um, so if I'm doing a program and most of the people are wearing like knee length denim skirts, um, you know, and, and polo shirts, probably going to skirt around the, uh, the evolution aspect of things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just to know, like, know my, audience. you know what (laughs) I mean? Um, because, uh, you know, I'm just saying, um, and, and I actually get that a lot with, uh. The, the thing is, is everyone expects us to be like these hardcore academics, um, and hardcore biologists. And I mean, one of the best naturalists that I know, uh, her, her degree is in, um, surveying and, and cartography, like map making, that's her degree, you know? So she's one of the best naturalists that I know because she's so good at communicating. So, I mean, oftentimes I will get visitors who say like my 12, 13 or 14 year old son or daughter wants to do what you do. Uh, Can you tell them how they can do that? And when I talk to them, I'll get this shy kind of backwards kid. Not always. I mean, sometimes I'll get someone that just, you know, who has the chops to be a communicator later on, you know? Uh, But a lot of times it's um, what, what the parent meant to say was my kids really interested in animals. Um, and that's what they want to do. And they misinterpret what I do a little bit as, uh, as like I get to go out and catch butterflies and, and play with animals all day, which is partially true. I mean, I do get to play with a lot of cool animals, you know what I mean? And I get to interact with a lot of cool wildlife, but uh, a, such a big part of my job is communication, like breaking those ideas down, getting people to understand things and like building a foundation for that sort of stuff. Um, is such a big part of my job. So I usually will talk to people. And if I, if I talk to their, say, if I talk to their kid, um, and they're like these kind of shy backwards people, and I say, well, how do you feel about public speaking? And they're like terrified. I'm like you, you. so would you be interested in being like a wildlife biologist or a vet? And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to, you know, well, that's kind of what they, you know, and their parents are just sort of misunderstanding what I do. Um, we tend to, we tend to be able to synthesize a lot of things like naturalists. You kind of have to be uh, multidisciplinary now. Now we all have our little like niche, you know um, I've, my backgrounds in reptiles and amphibians originally, like that was my kind of my specialty up until the whole Bigfoot thing. Um, my background was in reptiles and amphibians actually before we got on uh, it's about 50 degrees and raining where I'm at. So I was out, I walked our property to, to see if, uh, spotted salamanders were breeding yet because this is the time of year when spotted salamanders come out, um, spotted salamanders, wood frogs, and Jefferson, Jefferson salamanders come out to breed. Uh, we're still like a little early, but it's the right weather and it's the right temperature. Um, so I was out doing that, you know, just to see what was like, if there was anything moving on our property yet. Um, so I still do you know quite a bit of that, but a huge part of my job is just communication, like trying to trying to conceptualize things and synthesize information so that the public can take it. So that's kind of a it's kind of a quick and dirty rundown of what naturalists do, you know if that if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes um, complete sense We're basically like informal. Education. yeah, yeah, and it, you know, what you'll see, like if you look at like national parks, You'll see there are uh, national parks have a really broad definition of ranger, you know, the term ranger, uh, because there are rangers that are law enforcement that have the ability to write citations and tickets. But then there are also backcountry rangers that do trail maintenance. You know, there are interpretive rangers, which are that's more of a naturalist, what we're considering naturalists. Uh, And that idea of nature interpretation, that's actually my my degree is natural and historical interpretation, and much like interpreting a language, how you would translate a language, where rather than translating a language, we're interpreting uh, concepts and ideas. Okay, so that's why that term interpreter. And there's actually um, a set of principles that we all have to learn when you're when you're going through that major. There's a set of principles called Tilden's principles of interpretation. You know, um, but that idea of interpretation is uh much like learning a language and interpreting it. You know, but instead of um communication with, you know, actual words, we're communicating ideas and that's what we're interpreting. So uh that's that's kinda again, that's kind of a quick and dirty um idea of what a naturalist is or what a naturalist does.
3: So uh assumably, you know, you've probably been into being in the woods your entire life. Um, of course fascinated mm-hmm. more so with uh, like reptil or with reptiles and with uh, amphibians. But uh, where was like that, that spark that happened when it went from not just an interest in nature to you wanted to be able to understand it like biologically where right. you actually wanted to start right. becoming like a naturalist.
2: Yeah. Um, man, that this is always such a hard question because it's also kind of a little disappointing because everybody wants it to be like, I, I witnessed the sunrise on a cliff face or something, you know what I mean? Um, so I was an only child. All right. And, uh, many of the people in the town that I grew up in were older. Um, I didn't have, there were, there weren't a lot of other kids in the town that I grew up in. Um, and, uh, so I spent a lot of time just hunting and fishing and hiking and turning over rocks and things like that. That's, that's what I did for. I mean, um, myself and one of my, there was a neighbor who was uh, roughly my age, spent a lot of time just going out and like playing in the creek, you know? So I grew into that where it was like, I spent all this time outdoors, like you said. But um, I am the right age to have been like the prime audience for the crocodile hunter. (laughs) Ooh, crocodile. (laughs) You know, I mean, Steve, Steve, right, Steve Irwin, like I'm the right age to be the you know i'm like right in the pocket of the demographic that he was shooting for you know and i wanted to be steve Irwin, you know i mean i want i wanted to be indiana jones until i figured out like archaeology had nothing to do with like running from natives or chasing nazis <laughs> you know what i mean like none of the like you know i i wanted to, and then i but i saw um you know i grew up with steve Irwin like the crocodile hunter and seeing this seeing this crazy dude's passion for nature. And I'm like, man, that's how I feel, you know, like uh, this. And, uh, that's when I went out and, you know, from the, I mean, I was keeping, I was keeping little baby hatchling snapping turtles from the time I was like, you know, seven, eight years old. I was keeping, uh, I'd find these little baby snapping turtles and keep them in my room, you know? Um, so, I have always had an interest. I've always had an interest in sort of the the creepier animals, things like snakes, you know, snakes and snapping turtles, you know, like um, there's a term charismatic megafauna. Okay. So like lions and tigers and pandas, giraffes, things like that. That's charismatic megafauna, which is super important. Okay. Very important. Very charismatic. You can fundraise all day long for pandas, you know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but when it comes to something like a snake, you know, well, the snake gives, mo- you know, a snake gives most people the creeps, you know, um, we always joke like herpetologists are just, we have bad wiring, you know, <laughs> um, cause they don't creep us out. They fascinate us. Um, so I've always been more interested in that, you know, um, that side of things. So I would say when I really became like, when it, when it dawned on me that there was more to this than just like cool animals, Uh, I would say it was when actually, when I started learning more about um, say the theory of evolution, when I started learning how things were connected and where things came from and how things were formed um, and that sort of mind, like when you start putting pieces of things together, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, like I, like we were talking before we started recording, like, doesn't matter what you really think. If you actually read this stuff, like it seemed like Darwin was kind of onto something, right? You know, <laughs> like kind of seemed like he had his stuff to get, you know what I mean? Um, when it's like, well, this bird's beak is perfectly designed for cracking this one seed, you know, uh, kind of seems like you're onto something. It's kind
3: of no. like what you were so saying when where we have the giant deep period of time, it's a hard thing for people to fathom. And when it comes to like evolution right. in particular, just that that concept is hard for a lot it's of people it. to really understand because of how long of a period of time it takes for oh, something to actually evolve.
2: It's yeah. so hard. And it's so hard to account for like the variables because we don't learn when we learn variables, we learn like mathematic variables, you know what I mean? So they're still tangibles, like they're still numbers, you know, um, But, like, think about just the improbability of your birth. You know what I mean? Like, the cosmic roll of the dice that, you know, we're both here. Like, we both got, like, all of our DNA lined up properly. There were no complications, and we're both here. You know what I mean? Well, that happens every single day out in nature. You know what I mean? And sometimes that happens in favor of the animal. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes animals are born albino and don't stand a chance because they don't have any camouflage. You know what I mean? But sometimes they're born with a slight overbite that gives them just that much of an advantage over their, over their, you know, competition and they're able to reproduce. So the idea of like sexual selection and natural selection and evolution out in nature is really hard for people to conceptualize but that was maybe when I decided that the educational route rather than like the research route um, was, was really more meant for me uh, when I started learning things about like how things were connected to interrelationships, which basically ecology is just the study of interrelationships out in nature, how things are connected and how things are related. That's basically what ecology is about. Um, because um, what I often talk about with the Bigfoot stuff is like, if you, you can't just go out in the woods and learn only about one thing, whether it's Bigfoot or whatever. You have to learn about everything that might go into it, okay? So, like, um, the Kirtland's warbler, rare, rarest warbler in North America. It's a little, little bird, you know, rarest warbler. Um, the reason, like, you can learn everything there is to know about that individual bird, you know, just the bird, but if you don't understand, like, the history of European fire suppression in the East, like, when, when Europeans got here, we, like, they suppressed wildfire wildfires, uh, you know. Um, if you don't understand the ecology and the natural history of the jack pine, which is, the, uh, which is the ho- basically, like, the host plant of the Kirtland's warbler, that's where it nested, you know, uh, then you don't really understand the bird. OK, you have to kind of understand all those other things. You know, uh, there are certain pine, certain conifers where their seeds won't germinate until they're exposed to a certain temperature. And those temperatures are gained not from, you know, a drought. They're ga- the those temperatures are achieved through wildfires, you know, and that's how those the the seeds will actually germinate um there's a ridiculous so like, amount it, of uh, stuff that, that only sort of will thing. bloom
3: in australia after there's a wildfire like there, there's a there's a Wait, ridiculous right amount of flowers. after a while
2: there's a crazy australia is a whole not, i mean that's why that's why australia is such a uh i mean it's almost like an indicator continent you know what i mean like not only is almost everything on the continent like i mean unique you know like there's so many adaptations. I mean, Think about the variety of mar- marsupials on the continent, you know, or the variety of venomous snakes, you know. Um, but also, it's a great study in things like invasive species. Like they have such a problem with invasive c- cats and dingoes, and you know all of the things that weren't there to begin with. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, yeah, I mean it's a great it's a great study in that. Like yeah, Australia is a great, really fascinating. Um, thing. Um, but I mean, so are we. That's what I, you know, there's so many things. That's what I mean. When I started learning about um, the interconnectedness of everything, like how everything was woven together, that's really when I wanted to um, do this, do this educational side of things. I mean, because uh, every naturalist has this delusion for a short period of time that you're going to live out your days in a rustic cabin out on some lake in some pristine wilderness counting ducks and doing bird surveys and catching, you know, catching critters and protecting the environment. Like that's great. And some people actually get that, you know what I mean? Like some people get that, but other people um, go the educational route where we end up um, trying to get other people excited about the same things we are, you know? And that's really, I mean, that's really where I'm at is I just want to, uh, share how cool everything is and why it is important to be protected. I mean, I, I, and I will pick my battles, you know, I will not argue with anybody about climate change. Like if you're nothing, I'm going to be able to say is going to change someone's mind. You know what I mean? But if I can get a kid to recycle a pop can, you know, instead of filling it up with water and letting it sink to the bottom of the lake, like Pappy does, you know what I mean, um that's what i'm going for you know what i mean i'm not going for big huge changes i'm going for like that one person who changes the you know or who gets excited about one thing that i said you know that's kind of what i'm going for um you gotta start them off young and and raise them right the things that work you got you have to you have to i mean you gotta you gotta And still, and I think that's part of. I was fortunate because I grew up in a family of outdoors people. I mean, my both of my parents hunted. Like my mom and my mom and dad both hunted. You know, Um, I mean, and my parents got married really young and were very very poor when they uh, when they first got. I mean, my my mom was sixteen, my dad was seventeen when they got married, and uh, I mean, they talk about how how like the good times at one point, like the good times were when they were eating nothing but rabbit and deer, you know, but the amount of fun that they had and how close they got, you know, during, and I can see that with like my family, you know, like our good times are not necessarily like that wicked vacation we went to, you know what I mean? Like sometimes our good times are like the the random experiences that we have, you know, together. I mean, 2020, we, uh, I my, my, uh, we had a quarantine baby, you know, I think we talked about that at mm-hmm. cryptid this year, you know, like our, we've got a two year old. Um, and I mean, we, uh, <clears throat> we decided like <clears throat> when my wife got pregnant, we decided to keep the kids home from school. So they're not, they weren't dragging anything home. You know what I mean? We were trying to stay safe. So we kept the kids home from school and homeschooled them for that year. Um, and, you know, some of the, our most memorable experiences come from that time, you know, that weird time, but like the kids rem, my kids remember that they remember, like, I mean, I grew, I had 120 tomato plants that year, you know, they remember that like they, uh, so I, uh, I was fortunate to grow up in that, um, I I was fortunate enough to grow up in that environment. Like my parents, both my parents were outdoors people, but I also grew up in a, um, in a community that almost everyone gardened, almost everyone hunted and trapped and fished. Um, I I kind of joke, like, I don't remember not knowing how to clean a catfish or a snapping turtle. Like, I don't remember not knowing how to, you know, do that. You know what I mean? Like it was just something that I, I grew up doing, you know? Um, I don't remember not knowing like firearm safety, you know, um, it was just, I grew up around, um, firearms and it's just something I don't remember not knowing how to do, you know? Um, so yeah, I was kind of fortunate that I grew up in that environment where, and also my parents, um, I mean, my dad worked for the city of Cambridge, um, for 30 some years. And he worked for the water and sewer department. So like literally a shitty job, you know what I mean? Some days it was like literally a shitty job working for the sewer department, a municipal sewer, you know what I mean? Like, so my parents encouraged me to do something that, I mean, not only would give me, um, like that would support me financially, you know? Um, but they encouraged me to do something that I didn't hate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, don't do something that you make a ton of money that you just hate, you know? Um, so it's about I was kind of your fortunate day. with that. I, I didn't, mm-hmm. what, what's
3: that? I said it's about the quality of your day rather than, yeah, you know, about, making a bunch of money and working quali- eight hours and being miserable. I'd rather make a little bit less and do something I'm at least happy doing. Cause then eight hours of my day that I'm not
2: miserable. I'm at least happy. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that like, I think that we're seeing a generation now that's appreciating that a little bit more. You know what I mean? That it's not all about, you know, I mean, cause you know, you know how many people I went to school with that became nurses, like just because like that was a guaranteed paycheck.
3: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? A lot of
2: them with me too. Like, well, they they you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, I, I went to school with so many people who had, you know, I mean, they weren't going to, they didn't go to nursing school because they, uh, you know, they had a memorable nurse you know what I mean, mm-hmm. they went to nursing school because it was a guaranteed paycheck and they might hate it every day, you know, but like I, uh, I personally, I mean, I'm fortunate. <clears throat> I, I had originally wanted to be a herpetologist, you know, and then a good friend of mine who is a, actually a good botanist friend of mine. Um, he's got a doctorate in botany. um, told me when I was in high school, like he was kind of my mentor in the naturalist thing. You know, when I, when I, when I kind of figured out what I wanted to do, which was pretty young, he sort of took me under his wing and, um, taught me a lot of stuff. He, uh, had told me that, you know what, um, if you want to be a herpetologist, that's great, but I know you and I've known you for a couple of years now. And, um, You're going to go to college. I mean, I was about 17 or 18 when he told me this. You know, he said, you're going to go to college for herpetology. You're going to probably never meet your professor. You know, you'll probably never meet your actual, like the head of your department. You'll meet a TA and then you'll get your bachelor's or master's or even doctorate or whatever. And then you're going to go to some other college and never get out in the field. And you're going to teach it and you're going to hate it. He's like, you need to find something that you can go out. It it pays the bills, but it also gives you an excuse to go out and catch snakes and tell people all the cool things about snakes. And it gives you an excuse to go out and look at plants because I I was kind of torn between whether I wanted to be a, uh, you know, herpetologist like Steve Irwin, you know, I wanted to go out and catch snakes or like a botanist. Um, I've always, um, I've always really loved gardening and I've really loved, uh, wild plants and woodland plants. So um, botany has always been a big interest. I actually teach adjunct at a community college here. I teach two units of of botany at a community college um, nearby here um, because it is it is something that's always fascinated me and it's something that I'm relatively good at. So, and botany is, you know, interesting. I mean, it's one of those things that like pretty much every botany and geology are the two things that no matter what circumstance, You can pretty much tie everything to it, you know, like, and botany is directly tied to geology. You know what I mean? You can, you can guess what plants grow in an area because of the soil type, you know what I mean? Um, And then extending off of that, you figure out what animals live there depending on the plants. Right, 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 right. Well, that's kind of one of the things that I tell everybody is like, if you can learn soils, if you can learn like soil profiles, it's kind of like a cheat code, you know, in in nature because you can basically figure out what's going to grow there you know and then if you can figure out what's going to grow there you can figure out the soil type and what the water is going to be like Um, you figure out what's going to grow there you can figure out the things that are going to eat the plants that grow there and then you're going to figure out the things that eat the things that eat the plants that are going to grow there you can also figure out the things that pollinate the plants there you know everything can tie into that so uh so those sorts of things um always fascinated me um so i ended up going this route and like i said i uh i've worked a few different places now i'm i'm fortunate enough now that i work at uh at my home park i mean this park was 12 miles from where i grew up at you know I, like i literally grew up in this park i learned how to ride my bike in this park you know um and it, it actually takes me longer to drive through the park than it does for, for me to commute to the park. You know, <laughs> um, and if I, uh, if I talk to, uh, if I talk to say someone who asked me like, what's the best part of your job? It's sort of this thing, like what's the best and the worst part of my career are both the same thing. Like the best part is getting to talk to people and, interact with the public and get people excited about this stuff. And the worst part of it is interacting with the public. You know what I mean? <laughs> Easily. Because there's this weird contradiction. I mean, if you've, uh, I don't know if you, if you've ever read any like Edward Abbey, you know, or if you're familiar with Edward Abbey, if you know anything, um, like he, he wrote desert solitaire. Uh, that was maybe his most famous work. Um, which was basically, he spent a few seasons as a, as a ranger out West, you know, um, and one of the things is there's this weird contradiction in this this field, you know, where your whole job is to get people out and get people excited about your park. And then when people are out in your park, you're like, half of these people do not deserve to be here. <laughs> They're like literally trashing the park. You know what I mean? Half of these people have no business here, you know? So there's this weird contradiction out there where it's like, wait, well, you know what? I want you to come. I want you to learn. I want you to be excited. I want, I want to share this passion with you. And then it's like, can you please put your dog on a leash? You know, like, I know your dog is like your kid, but can you please put it on a leash? You know, or can you please not like throw your dirty diaper in the parking lot? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah, I mean, there's this weird contradiction uh, with the whole, the whole field, you know? Um but, uh, it, I mean, it is rewarding. Like, that's what I mean. Like, I'll, I'll get that one interaction with a, uh, with a kid where I'm like, oh man, you know, like once a summer, sometimes like sometimes summers are rough and like once a summer, I'll get that one interaction where, with a kid where I'm like, oh, that's why I'm doing this. You know what I mean? That's like, this is exactly why I'm doing this.
3: All it takes is one of those, uh, yeah. one little small, honest interaction that makes a whole world of difference. And it also kind of just honestly sparks your interest back in what you're doing too, and brings your heart back into it. And, uh, actually wow. I'm honest, at least, you know, coming from like the animal nerd and myself too, uh, I was going to ask at least as far as like your part goes, uh, what are some of like the most interesting animals that you've gotten a chance to see? And what are some of like the rarest animals that you've gotten to see in your park? <clears throat>
2: Oh, that's good. Okay. So, uh, so I, I've worked a few different places like my particular park. Um, one of the things that makes my park cool is that we're a really good example of what a mixed second growth Appalachian forest looks like. Like we don't have big scenic vistas like they do at Hawking Hills, um, or places like that, you know, we don't, but we have, uh, what we do have is really a really good example of what an, a typical, Appalachian hardwood forest looks like in that second growth phase, like when everything was cleared out and there was human influence and everything comes back, which is throughout the most, you know, most of the Appalachian range. And I mean, Eastern Ohio is in Appalachia. Um, When most people think of Appalachia, they think of the Carolinas, you know, Um, they think of Tennessee, like they think of uh, East Tennessee, you know, or Virginia. That's what they think of when they think of Appalachia, but Eastern Ohio um, is in the Appalachian foothills, and it's in what we would consider the geographic area of Appalachia. And what you have to understand is the Appalachian Mountains are older than bones. Like, when the Appalachian Mountains were formed, there were no bones. Like, there were, there was nothing on the face of the planet that had bones, you know. Um, they're older than bones. So uh, we're a really good example at my park of what an eastern Appalachian hardwood forest looks like in that second growth phase, like when things get cleared out and influenced by humans. So that's one of the coolest things to me. Now, as far as animals go, um, I've seen, I mentioned the Kirtland's Warbler Uh, in northwest Ohio. There's a park called Mommy Bay um, and there's a wildlife area near there called McGee Marsh. And McGee Marsh is the stopover for migrating warblers into Canada every year. And uh, I was fortunate enough a few years ago to see a Kirtland's warbler there um, at my last state park that I worked at. Um, It's down way down in southern Ohio in the least populated county um, in Vinton County. It's called Lake Hope State Park. Um, I saw, while not exceptionally rare, uh, to me, it's one of the coolest snakes. Um, that you can find in Ohio and really one of the coolest snakes you can find in the East is, uh, the Eastern hognose snake. Um, and the Eastern hognose snake is this really fascinating snake. They, they feed primarily on toads, on American toads and fowler's mm-hmm. toads. Um, so they've got this, this flat nose, uh, hence the name hognose snake. They're, uh, they're these sort of short fat snakes that have this wide color variation. Like some of them can be black. Some of them can be yellow. Some of them are this beautiful sunrise orange. Um, But they do something kind of interesting. If you mess with one, if they feel threatened, they'll rear their head back and flatten out their neck and act like a cobra and they'll strike. But they strike with their mouth closed. Okay. Now, if you keep messing with them, they flop over, hang out their tongue, crap all over themselves. Sometimes they will actually bleed out of their mouth and they'll, they'll excrete something that smells like a dead animal. They'll attract flies, and they fall over and play dead, you know? Um, so then when you turn one over, uh, when they're playing dead, they're, they, want, they want to be convincing. So if you turn one back onto its belly, they flip right back over onto its back. And they will remain uh, in that state of, you know, playing dead, playing possum, until you're gone, so you leave, you know? Um, aren't those, uh, rear fang venomous snakes? Too? Okay. So yeah, here's the weird thing. The idea of like venomous, non-venomous snakes, that's a huge gray area. Okay. We're finding more and more like as research goes, is there might not be such thing as a non-venomous snake. Like everything might be on a spectrum, you know? Um, now there are things that are true constrictors like boas and stuff, but we're finding things like garter snakes, water snakes, hognose snakes, uh, actually probably have some pretty potent toxin, at least for smaller animals. Uh, and there has been quite a few reports of people getting bit by hognose snakes and having a pretty bad reaction to it, their uh, hands swelling up and things like that. So, yeah, they would be, they're not quite rear fanged. That's the thing is they don't really fall into that category. So most rear fanged snakes are elapids. It's a whole, elapidae is a whole thing. There's elapids, glubrids, boids um and viperids the um and so they're they're not quite um they're not quite elapids, but they're still colubrids but they've got these weird teeth and their their rear fangs are are interesting if you think about catching a toad in your garden what's the first thing a toad does after it pees all over you you know what i mean it swells up right it mm-hmm. inflates its body so it looks bigger if you think about it so those rear fangs and a hognose snake those are meant to Pop and deflate a toad. That's what they're used for—is to deflate a toad so they can get it down their throat. You know, um, so they're not necessarily meant to inject venom. They're actually meant to deflate toads. um I mean, how cool is that? Right. Working it's, in the uh, reptile
3: industry, I always heard that they pretty much, in order for it to actually have an effect on a human, they almost had to like gnaw on you for a while. So you had to like full well be <laughs> letting them do it. it. Right. That's what, that's what I mean. Is it's
2: like it's like a spectrum. Like if you get bit by a copperhead, the copperhead kind of dictates whether it's going to inject venom into you. You know what I mean? But this spectrum is like some snakes have a toxin in their saliva and we don't really know. You know what I mean? Um, and maybe you could be sensitive to it. Maybe you're not, you know, it's kind of a spectrum. Um, but the cool thing about, I mean, one of the things about a hognose snake, and this is kind of just a pet theory of mine. Um, if you're familiar with Ohio history and Ohio prehistory, uh, you might be familiar with Serpent Mound, mm-hmm. okay? And there's a ton of speculation about Serpent Mound. I mean, a ton and a ton of bad information. You know, they're like journalists who try and play historian, you know what I mean? And, and, and all sorts of like, there's a ton of wonky information about Serpent Mound out there. But one thing that we can mostly all agree on is that it's a big snake, right? You know, we can look at it and say it's a big snake why it's there and stuff doesn't necessarily interest me as much as that it's a big snake you know and uh from a herpetologist's standpoint when i look at it you know you see it and it's coiled up and its tail coils in this really tight spiral and the only snake that i know that does that is a hognose snake when they fall over they will spiral up their tail and coil it into this tight spiral, you know? It's the only snake that I know that does that. And if you look at it from kind of like an anthropological point of view, you know what I mean? How important would a snake that dies and then resurrects be to, you know, a culture? Like, if you, like, that was, if you witnessed the snake dying and coming back to life, like, wouldn't that be an important thing? It's almost like you their know?
3: variation of, like, a like the like Phoenix lore.
2: Right. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, to me, I would build a monument to that if I had no other understanding of anything. So, like, to me, and this is just my personal theory, you know, this has no basis in fact whatsoever. But to me, Serpent Mound is a giant effigy to a hognose snakes, you yeah. know. So that's one of the coolest things that I've Now, at my park, personally, um, there are one of my favorite animals is there, like one of my favorite birds. Um, is really active there. The American woodcock, if you've ever heard of that, mm-hmm. uh, great name, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, come on, you know, I've got a pair of boxer shorts that literally have an American woodcock on the. Uh, yeah, right, right. right.
3: <laughs> I was trying to hit the <laughs> That's what she said, um,
2: that one, but <laughs> but you know, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great name, and if you uh, if you look into like some of their their old folk names, like their colloquial names, you got things like bog sucker. In Timberdoodle. I mean, come on. You know, it's a great, it's a goofy little bird. And it's about the size of like a Nerf football, okay? It's this little brown bird about the size of a Nerf football with this really long beak and these beady little eyes. And uh, they eat worms. They've actually got a jointed beak. So if you think about like, if you think about a bird's beak, you know, normally they're kind of a pincher, right? Well, uh, uh, an American woodcock has this little joint right on the end. So they can slide that long beak into a worm burrow, you know, a wormhole, Mm -hmm. and actually, like, tweeze the end of the worm and pull it out. Um, So they're fascinating to begin with. I mean, you know, a great name. Uh, One of the greatest joys that I have is writing up the, you know, an American Woodcock program so that other people have to read it over the phone. Like when somebody calls and says, hey, what's happening at the park this weekend? You know what I mean? Like one of the greatest joys I have is to try to make the person repeat American Woodcock so many times, um, you know, but, but um, one of the coolest things about them is they do this aerial mating display. OK, so the males will will call out females in the middle of a field until he's got kind of an audience and then he will do this big spiral up in the sky. And you can hear that when you're witnessing it, you can actually hear this sort of twittering and whistling as they're coming down in the spiral and uh, they'll land almost right where they started. Okay. And that twittering and whistling is actually coming from the ends of their wings, the primary feathers in their wings. That's where that it's not a vocalization. It's actually a function of the primary feathers in their wings. That's where that uh, whistling and twittering is come from coming from. So um, they are, one of my fa- and they're really plentiful at the park. They're one of my favorite things to witness this time of year. Getting into March, they start to uh, they start to do their courtship displays and things like that. So um, that's maybe one of my favorite birds. Now, uh, something kind of interesting, we'll, which will tie into sort of some of the Bigfoot stuff that we talk about later, <laughs> um, in my park. Uh, so Ohio has a really rich history of. Um, herpetological studies so like reptile and amphibian studies okay um the guy that literally wrote the field guide for north american uh reptiles and amphibians he was an ohio naturalist uh roger conant he wrote he wrote the peterson field guide for reptiles and amphibians um he was an ohio naturalist he was the curator of reptiles at the toledo zoo um and he did a comprehensive survey of reptiles and amphibians or reptiles in the state. He did a co- comprehensive survey of reptiles in Ohio and he did it twice. And he had all these contacts all over the state. Okay. And he would get this information he would get field notes and, um, specimens from all over the state. Well, uh, in my particular County, and I grew, I grew up here looking for snakes and things in my particular County, Northern copperheads, um, were, Reported in like 1957, you know, uh, that was like the last reported northern copperhead, um, and basically, I had never seen one. I mean, when I was, I, I'm I'm on the sheriff's department call list for like a little old lady has a snake in her garage, and they don't have a deputy that wants to go out and deal with it. Like, they'll call me, and I'll go out and take this. You know, usually it's a garter snake or something out of this lady's garage. So I'm, I'm pretty like well-known in the communities around here for being a snake guy. And, uh, I've never had a picture of one brought to me. I've never had a picture on someone's phone. I've never had a dead one. I've never had a live one, you know? Um, I've never seen one in this County and I would frequently tell people like, uh, if they would ask like, no, you don't have to worry. No venomous snakes in this County, you know? Um, you're not going to see a copperhead, you know. You're not going to see a northern copperhead. Well, May uh, of last year, I was checking um, a few things up in the north end of the park, and <clears throat> I looked down, and there was this big flat rock, and I'm like, "Oh, you know what? This rock looks snaky. I wonder what I'll find under here, you know." And I flipped over the rock, and there was a northern copperhead, first county record since the 1950s. You know, that's awesome, but. It was a smaller one. Yeah, I mean, it was a smaller one. So it, they've been there forever. I've never seen one. I mean, I, I completely lost, you know, completely lost my mind because, like, you know, this changed everything that I had been saying. You know, I had been wrong. I had been telling people, like, your grandpa was wrong about what he saw. He saw a northern water snake. You know what I mean? Or he saw a milk snake. You didn't see a copperhead. No copperheads in this county. I had been saying that, you know. And here here I am, like, who knows what I'm looking at, you know what I mean? And uh yeah, so I was I was pretty excited about that. That's maybe one of the things that I'm uh that I was the most excited about, you know, is that northern copperhead. And my last park when I mentioned Lake Hope where I found the uh the eastern hognose snake, um copperhead's everywhere down there. I mean there was a rock I called copperhead rock. I could go there, turn it over and there would always be a copperhead under it, you know? Um, so it's not like they're rare. They just weren't in this County. Like I said, the last reported one had been in the 1950s. So, um, that might've been the, that might be the, uh, one of the things that I'm really, um, really proud of and really excited about.
3: Did they, uh, go extinct in that County or was it more so one of those things that they got pushed out of the County?
2: So, copperheads have always been in the hill counties, like in eastern Ohio, um, as opposed to rattlesnakes, which mostly rattlesnakes in Ohio have been extirpated to about, what, like six counties. Timber rattlesnakes, I think, are in six or seven counties in the state, and they're all southern counties. Well, originally rattlesnakes were in all 88 counties in Ohio, and they're just not anymore. Um, And massasauga rattlesnakes, same thing, massasauga rattlesnakes are actually... A candidate for federally endangered, um, so uh, they didn't. They didn't necessarily. I mean, human human persecution is certainly a big part of it, but also habitat loss is a big part of it. So the uh, the northern copperhead, as things were deforested in Ohio, um, their populations got smaller and smaller and smaller. So they weren't necessarily extirpated you know, completely, but certainly the range has been reduced to the South, the extreme Southeast portion of the state, um, as opposed to the whole Eastern portion. Um, but you know, there, I'm certain there are woodlots somewhere even more North, like North of here. I'm certainly there are woodlots where maybe no one ever goes until deer season in the middle of winter. And, uh, there are copperheads there, you know, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, they were, uh, it's also a matter of someone finding something that knows what they're looking at. You know what I mean? True. Um, cause basically, basically everything with a pattern turns into a copperhead. You know what I mean? Like a milk snake, every, every copperhead I've ever seen up until last May, every copperhead that somebody brought me was a milk snake or a water snake, you know? Um, so it's all, it's also a matter of someone who knows what the heck they're looking at seeing it, you know?
3: Makes you wonder how many people may have so, encountered them and didn't even realize that they did.
2: Right? Yeah. Actually, um, I've got a pretty decent picture on my Instagram of that, the copyright that I'm talking about.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward.
0: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: Um, and I threw, it, I threw it up there because it's one of those pictures. Uh, when I laid it, I laid it down on a pile of dead leaves and it sort of vanished. You know, like it blended in so well, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the people will walk by it and didn't know they walked by it. You know, that's even, you know, even, uh, it's definitely something to think about.
3: Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. So, um, at least kind of going into some of the Sasquatch stuff, uh, what kind of sparked your interest in that? Was mm-hmm. it more so the fact that you were kind of into reptiles? so You kind of were into the like kind of fringy kind of animals to begin with, or was what? it like this copperhead experience that, you know, it kind of, uh, sparked your so, miss, your, your, um, I guess mysticism, whatever you want to call it, sparked <laughs> your interest in the fact that there may yeah. actually be something in the area that, people just don't commonly see.
2: Right. Um, so starting out with it and I will freely admit, I know this is unpopular, but I actually changed my opinion on something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Um, I know it's like 2023 and it's really hard to convince people that you changed your opinion, you know? Um, but when I, you have to kind of look at it from my perspective. So I grew up around here and the grass man was a thing. Okay. Okay. Like people talked about Bigfoot and stuff around here. I mean, it's been popular around here since the 1980s, you know? Um, So I grew up with it. And most of the people that I interacted with hunting and fishing and things like that thought that it was like a load of nonsense. Okay. Um, But I'll kind of get back to that. Like, so I grew up not really thinking about it. And then I go to college and I come back to this area and I have all this cool stuff that I want to share with people. I want to share things about snakes and bugs and birds and things like that. And I get back to Salt Fork. I got back to Salt Fork. Um, I, got, I got hired on in 2012. Uh, so right after Finding Bigfoot came, I think they, they came out to the park in 2011. Uh, it was 2010, 2011 when they came out to the park. I can't, I can't remember. Um, so it was kind of like right at the start of the Bigfoot mania. In, in our county and at our park, okay? Um, so I got back here in 2012, and 90% of what everybody wanted to talk about was Bigfoot, and it was killing me inside. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like, I got all this cool knowledge, and I'm dealing with dads in, in tube socks and cargo shorts saying like, oh, have you ever seen Bigfoot? You know what I mean? Like, I I, I, I had no... You know, and it was really like, so I I had done these, I did two, um, I did two sort of one-off programs. I did one in 2012 and one in 2013, which was, and I kind of, I kind of built them as this sort of like, um, okay, if Bigfoot exists, let's take a look at what the ecology of Bigfoot would be. Like, what's he eating? Where is he hiding? What's, you know, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? So let's take a look at this habitat and we're going to, we're going to like look at it as though Bigfoot were a, you know, real thing. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was kind of playing it like that. They were really well attended, well received. No one had a problem with the way that I approached it. Um, so I transferred to another park in 2013. Um, another park that didn't have, you know, Bigfoot definitely wasn't such a big part of the folklore down there. Um, and the naturalist that was kind of had been there had been at salt work in the interim uh got to know a lot of bigfoot researchers and sort of farmed out the bigfoot hike okay so that um they contacted bigfoot researchers who would come in and they would sort of the naturalist would sort of host the bigfoot hike and then the researchers would do all of the sort of the heavy lifting so to speak you know uh the so they they were like a core of volunteers who did bigfoot stuff for the park Um, so I got back in 2016, still sort of on the side of like, you know, for the love of God, just listen to me talk about birds for a second. You know what I mean? I got this Um, copperhead over here (laughs) and I was right. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Um, you know, so, uh, so I kind of, I was like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean? The Bigfoot researchers are doing a great job. Um, so for, I mean, literally like a couple of years, I mean, it was probably 2018 before I sort of, you know, drank the flavor aid, you know, <laughs> like um, it was a couple of years, like, uh, you know, um, we had, uh, I, I'd, I would do. So like a typical Bigfoot hike back then would be, uh, I would introduce myself. I would introduce the Bigfoot researchers. I would thank everybody. Um, and then I would say like, they're going to do their thing. I'm going to call some owls, you know, I'm kind of, one of the things I'm most proud of is I have like a really spot on barred alcohol that I can do, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to call some owls and we'll talk about some real animals, you know, and that was kind of a typical thing back then, uh, a typical way that I would approach this back then. And then it's sort of, um, one of the, one of the things um, that sort of happened was first off, I started talking to so many people uh, being and I, like, if you stopped by my nature center completely cold, like we'd never met, you know, um, if you walked in, I would come out of the back. You know, I've got like a little back office and I've got a, a uh, uh, you know, a ding, a dinger on the door that so I can tell when people come in. I would come out of the back office and, uh, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Have you ever been here before? You know, um, welcome to salt fork. You stand at the lodge, camping, blah, blah, blah. Where are you from? Uh, I'm, I'm basically fishing for something to relate to you with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, you're, you know, you're down here hunting. Cool. What are you hunting? And then we could talk about that, you know? Um, so I would talk to people and I would get so many people who didn't have any skin in the Bigfoot game. Does that make sense? Like, no reason. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of dudes who are in the, like, you know, the Velcro Velcro culture Bigfoot dudes. You know what I mean? They carry the tactical backpack everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. They're, like, decked out in tactical, you know, gear all the time. I talked to a lot of guys like that. I mean... I would take a, you know a farmer who saw something and is kind of worried about telling somebody but he really needs to get it off his chest. I would take their stories more seriously than than a lot of those guys. Okay. And no, I'm not I'm not casting any like disrespect to those guys because they do a lot of great citizen science and stuff. I'm just saying like from my perspective, I do I you know the thing that started to kind of chip away at my skepticism or my, Not even my skepticism, because I'm still, still skeptical. That's what you have to do in science. You have to be skeptical. But my cynicism about it, the things that started chipping away at my cynicism about it, were talking to the people who had no reason to spin a yarn about Bigfoot. You know, like they had no reason to lie about it. Uh, I saw this thing. I'm never going back to that creek. You know, I, I hunted and fished that creek for 40 years, and I saw this thing, and I'm never going back. Like, wow, you know. And, uh, and then I started noticing a weird thing, like people will dismiss the Bigfoot thing so readily, you know what I mean? They'll say like, that's crazy. That person, he lost his mind. What is he talking about? But then they'll turn around and say like, they had a religious experience, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I, you know, I almost got hit by a dump truck and I saw my guardian angel and it's like, okay, we're kind of splitting hairs here. You're saying (laughs) I got, you know you're calling your neighbor crazy for seeing Bigfoot, but then you're saying you saw, you know what I mean? Or like those Bigfoot people are crazy, but look at this cardinal landed on our picnic table. That's Papa. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like coming to visit us like that, you know, you you know, so people will write that thing off, you know, write that stuff off immediately. So I talked to so many people who had no reason to lie. It started started to chip away at my cynicism. So if we fast forward a little bit, um, I had never had any experiences up to a point, okay. And uh, when my wife and I started dating, um, she's from Canton, like a, a, a an actual like city, you know, like an actual real real city. Um, and uh, I'm from down here in the boon box, you know. And when you when say Canton, or are you to referring to Canton, Michigan,
3: or are you uh, referring to somewhere in Ohio?
2: Canton, uh, Ohio. Canton, Ohio. Well, okay. Yeah, because we have a Ohio, Canton, Michigan, so, so I was kind of curious yeah okay all right no there's canton ohio like canton akron cleveland are kind of up you know clustered in the northeast part of the state um canton's a little south of of cleveland um it's about it's about 50 about an hour and 10 from here really um but it's almost a straight shot on 77 north of here um so my wife uh is from canton originally well she's not from canton originally she's from seattle originally but she she lived in canton for years and years and years that's where she was living when we met so uh when i would go on dates with her up north like up in canton um we would go see live music or go you know out to a bar or like go downtown or do whatever you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um when she would come down here i would take her squirrel hunting because that's how you date in Appalachia. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, um, <laughs> the, uh, what, At one point we were out squirrel hunting at the park. It was actually on the wildlife area at the park. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> um, we heard this long moaning, like this long mournful howl moan, you know, uh, that just echoed through the woods. Like we're out there. And she asked me, she said, what is that? And I'm really, like I said, I've got a pretty good ear. Uh, and I was, uh, I'm like, well, it's, I really don't know what it was. You know what I mean? I really don't know what it was. So we, we leave and we're in the car and she's like YouTubing sound clips of animals, coyotes, owls, things like that. And I said, hey, look up the Ohio how." Are you familiar with the Ohio Howl? Yeah, of course. That recording from Columbiana County. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, So I said, look up the Ohio Howl. Well, she plays it, and she says that's exactly what we heard. And I, she said, what is that? What's that? And I said, well, allegedly that's a Bigfoot. Okay. Now, not a smoking gun by any 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 means. Okay. Uh, I have no way of knowing. That on the opposite ridgeline, there wasn't a Bigfoot researcher with a Bluetooth speaker playing the exact sound clip that she looked up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I've got I've got no way of knowing that, um, but we definitely heard something. Uh, so that that got to me a little bit, and that definitely um, again chipped away at my cynicism a little bit more. And if we fast forward a little bit more, I started looking at more of the evidence, the footprints, the reports and things like that, which, again, just kept chipping away, you know, Um, and we get to up to 2020 when everything shuts down and we uh, we we are no longer doing public programs during 2020. All right. Um, We're doing we switched all virtual stuff. And at one point they had asked me to do a Bigfoot video. And I did. I put together this sort of Bigfoot 101, you know, Um, and I I tell you, no matter what I've done, the most crap that I've got, like the most shit I've got was because I mixed. I was talking like a mile a minute and I mixed up uh, Patterson and Gimlin. You know what I mean? I like I mixed them up. I mixed up their role. And man, people ripped me apart about that. Like it was just it was a simple like I was. I was talking and man, people ripped me up, you know, apart part about that. I, I still get people that mention it like, oh yeah, you, you're the, you know, uh, you mentioned that. But anyway, I did, I did a Bigfoot video. Um, and it was like immediately the most viewed thing on the, the ODNR's YouTube channel. Okay. Um, yeah, and it still is, as far as I know, we have like... Cause up to that point, I'd been doing little, little, like five minute creature features, you know, catching a snake and talking about it, things like that. And I'd, I'd be happy with five or 600 views, you know, um, doing and Steve Irwin I style. the last time I <laughs> checked the YouTube channel, yeah, oh, I loved it. I loved it. Cause I, yeah, I really did. The first one that I did, I think was a snapping turtle, a little snapping turtle. And I, I was like down on my belly, you know, in front of the camera. And the, the turtle was like crawling in front of the, and I kept picking it up and moving it back and talking about it. Like I had just found it, you know? Yeah. It was like, um, it was great. I mean, I have, there's one video of me on my belly next to a softshell turtle laying eggs and she's like kicking sand at my face while I'm talking, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it really was. I was like trying to, I was trying to embody the Steve Irwin thing. Um, but uh, we did the Bigfoot video and I think last time I checked it, had, it still had like 1.2 million views or something you know it was like it's our craziest most viewed vi- video so I ended up doing a series of four uh, that also were equally as popular um, and that, that led to well getting in contact with you know podcasters and researchers I mean the one day when I got a call from California on my state phone. It was Matt Moneymaker to, to chit chat. That was that was kind of cool. You know what I mean? Um, I was pretty into that. Um, so I started going to the conferences and stuff more, and really taking uh, the research. I mean, really like this whole section of books on my shelf right here. This is like this is what isn't our at my office as far as my Bigfoot library. You know what I mean? Like the <laughs> stuff that's at my office is even more of it. So like I've gotten really, again, I drank the flavor aid, you know, um, cause it's really, and I try to, I, I try to remain skeptical because you have to, as a scientist and as a naturalist, you have to remain skeptical. Like I try to eliminate all of the things that could possibly be, but there are some things that I just can't explain. Uh, and what I try to always tell people, I mean, I catch a massive amount of crap, uh, from other like peers of mine, you know, naturalists, um, about doing the Bigfoot thing. And I'm like, first of all, I can do a Bigfoot. I can get 300 people. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that's that's kind of cool. That's kind of impressive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but second, Bigfoot, the, the idea of whether Bigfoot is real or not is kind of a moot point when it comes to the whole big picture. I mean, if you're talking like, is Bigfoot real? As in, like, there's a body that we can examine. Like, well, we don't know. Like, there's my thinking is it would either, it would kind of have to be the biggest mass delusion ever. You know what I mean? For like every single person to either have seen an upright bear, they're outright lying, or they're having a psychotic episode. Every person that seems has seen Bigfoot. You can't tell me, you know what I mean? That all three of those things, you know, that's not the only thing that could have happened. Like there has to be something to it. You know Um, there has to be something to it, but also That aside, if your definition of real is we have a body that you can examine, you can go to a museum and see a stuffed Bigfoot, you know, then no, by that hard definition, by that definition and that, you know, point of view, no, in your reality, Bigfoot's not real. Now, if you ask me, like, if you can take a, uh, if you can wear a shirt that has patty on it, you know, you have the walking Bigfoot on it you can wear it anywhere in the country, anywhere, you know, and someone like people will recognize it as Bigfoot, you know, then yes, hundred percent. It is integrated into our culture. You know, it is modern folklore, uh, regardless of any of the evidence, it's real in that we have willed it into being, you know what I mean? Like it is a hundred percent real in that it is part of the Western psyche. Now, all of that aside though, I mean, the massive amount of footprint evidence, the massive, I know anecdotal evidence doesn't stand up and doesn't hold up, but like, I've just talked to so many people who saw something. It's really hard for me to dismiss every one of them as like a crackpot, you know? So I try to remain skeptical, but it's, it's so hard anymore for me to, you know, um, I'm like an easy target for somebody to reel me in with a good story at this point. You know what I mean? Um, I try, I try so hard to like vet the stuff, but anymore I'm like, you know, and I, I will basically, and, and so many people, you know, uh, I had someone ask me like, how do how do you keep a straight face? Um, how do you keep a straight face when you're talking about this stuff? And I'm like, it's not hard. You know what I mean? Like I, I a lot of the people that I talk to, it doesn't matter. I mean, I had a woman once tell me that she heard the devil coming at it. Like she told me her Bigfoot story. And then she told me she heard the devil coming out of her, her kitchen sink spigot or uh, drain. You know, that was like the next story that she to- told. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, I mean, of course there was a big part of me that wanted to immediately like make a quip about like, well, do you call a plumber or an exorcist, you know, but, but, um, It dawned on me at that point, like sometimes these people just want to be heard, you know, like they just want someone who's not going to think they're crazy. You know, they just want to tell their story to somebody that doesn't think they're completely crazy, you know. And uh, so I try not to like I will listen to I will I will listen to a story about a Bigfoot equal, you know, a, a typical Bigfoot encounter where they're they're driving down a country road and something crossed in front of them. I will listen to that story with the equal enthusiasm that I do when somebody tells me one about a Bigfoot stepping out of a portal. You know what I mean. Um, I try to, I try to at least appreciate and listen to all that. I personally, um, being a naturalist and, and having a biology background and having an ecology background, um, if Bigfoot exists as a you know as an as a being. I, my point of view is that it is a flesh and blood, nut and bolt animal. That's my point of view, and that's because it's what I'm comfortable with. You know, I'm comfortable with flesh and blood, nut and bolt, carbon based animals. You know what I mean? Um, uh, it's what we, if we ever talk about aliens, you know, extraterrestrials, like they can be vastly different than us, but they will still conform to the laws of nature, you know. They will still have to conform because there are laws of nature and reality that right now, everything that we know pretty much conforms to, you know what I mean? And, uh, and that's like, they will, they're probably going to have some version of evolution that took place in their, you know what I mean? On their planet, like some version of s- sexual selection or natural selection. So things like they're still going to have to kind of obey the laws of nature, uh, in some capacity. And in mean, my point of view you know, we're looking at an animal that probably is a descendant of Gigantopithecus or Paranthropus, you know, um, and I was just reading an article, I think Paranthropus, they, they just discovered a site, I think in Africa where there were stone tools, um, you know, really primitive stone tools from a non modern human or a non Neanderthal, you know, that's mind blowing. So, uh, So, you know, we're probably looking, if this thing exists, we're probably looking at an animal that shares a descendant, you know, with the other great apes and with us. Um, So, and it probably conforms to those natural laws. Uh, But again, that's just what I, that's just what I'm comfortable with. And that's what I get into. I don't get into a lot of the supernatural stuff. I very rarely ever do anything, any like ghost tours or anything like that. Um, And mostly it's because like, If there is an afterlife, I think it it would really suck if your whole afterlife is just creeping out visitors at a B and B. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm uncomfortable. You know, I'm uncomfortable with that area, that that idea. You know, like man, if there is an afterlife, it must suck that your whole your whole afterlife is spent just weirding out people at an old hotel. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, um, I mean, I would probably. I would probably be down with that. I, I spend a lot of, a lot of my time weird, out my family. So I'd probably be okay with that. Um, but you know, <laughs> uh, I just, I don't get into a whole lot of the supernatural stuff. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my view on it. Um, the thing about the Bigfoot stuff in my, in the capacity of my job though, um, is that I use it as an educational tool. Okay. Uh, I can get people outside I can get people interested in nature. I can, you know, um, if I I inspire a kid to, and this is like personal opinions aside. I mean, I kind of gave you like an insight in what I believe about Bigfoot and things. Um, You know, the reason why I pursue it in my career and my capacity is because if I can inspire a kid to become a naturalist, to become an educator, to, to be passionate about nature, if it's through Bigfoot, who cares? That's a win. You know what I mean? And you know what? Maybe they'll be the ones that find something. You know what I mean? That find mm-hmm. that like hard evidence. But if I, you know, um, they're also going to learn a whole lot of cool stuff along the way. You know what I mean? They're going to learn life-changing things uh, out in nature. I mean, nature can teach you so many lessons. There's an Aldo Leopold quote. Um, Outer Leopold, sort of the the grandfather of wildlife management. He's sort of modern wildlife management. He kind of built the idea of modern wildlife management. Uh, There's a great quote that I like think of a a lot. Um, You know, there's a spiritual danger in thinking that food comes from the grocer and heat comes from the furnace. You know, Mm -hmm. like there's a real spiritual danger in that, you know. And uh, and I'm like, you know, I try to keep that in mind all of the time. And uh, if I can get somebody to think critically about those things, if it's through Bigfoot, you know, so be it. And someone that wants to argue with me about Bigfoot, about it not being real, I'm like, is also you have to give me good reasons why it's not real, and it can't just be, well, we would have found one by now, because we find new things all the time. Like you, you also are required to use your critical thinking muscles, which honestly. I mean, it's 2023. Our critical thinking muscles have atrophied pretty darn bad. You know what I mean? Um, like, we're not great at critical thinking anymore, you know? Um, we really aren't. And uh, and this requires critical thinking on both sides of this, you know, both sides of the debate whether Bigfoot's real. This requires um, a fair amount of critical thinking, you know?
3: Just to uh, throw in a couple ideas, too. Uh, When it comes to like Bigfoot and people not necessarily finding bodies, uh, you got to keep in mind, too, that as far as like the Smithsonian goes, like they were hiding giant bones forever. Like you can go down to South America and you can still find giant bones. So anything kind of weird like that, they seemingly kind of have an eye on to begin with. So if there is Sasquatch, there's definitely going to be government eye on that. And also kind of expanding on what you said. Um, as far as my daughter goes, I got her interested in the whole like Sasquatch phenomenon. But because of that, now I've gotten her interested in mycology. So now we can go for hikes and I can show her little mushrooms. She keeps an eye out and looks for all those little things. And even because of that, now I'm expanding into getting her to be interested in fishing. And I I was raised camping at least. So I've been trying to get her to get into camping for a while. And just having that Bigfoot step, open the door now where I can get her to go outside and be interested in these other things. And I think I've heard you mention it before, but you know, when you go out on a squatch hike, you're not just looking for the Sasquatch, you're enjoying all the different things along the way. So yeah. every time I go out and you're I learning. am and I look- looking for squatches, I, you know, one of the main other things I'm looking for is, uh, is mushrooms. Cause I, I'm have a huge fascination with just finding little mushrooms in nature. And it's just, you got to enjoy the experience. It's oh, all, yeah. it's all about not just the finding the Sasquatch, but the experience like, of being in nature. Yeah.
2: The the whole experience, that's it. Like, if you go out looking for Sasquatch every single time um, and just that, you're going to be incredibly disappointed, you know, uh, if you just go out with that tunnel vision, you know what I mean? But if you go out and learn as much as you can about the environment that you're working in, you know, and that you're researching, it's going to be rewarding no matter if you don't get a single tree knock or if you don't find a single footprint. It's still going to be a rewarding experience. You know, and for the most part, I think most researchers are kind of like that. You know, most researchers do have an appreciation. I've had very, this is another thing that I kind of point to is I've had much fewer unpleasant encounters with Bigfoot researchers and Bigfoot enthusiasts than I have with basically any other segment of the public that I work with. You know, I mean, I've had so many positive experiences with this, this demographic that it's pretty, uh, you know, it's rewarding in itself. Like, and I mean, I go to the conferences and people will come up and say, it's so nice to see somebody like in your position talking about this and the way you approach it. Yeah. We really like the way you approach Like that, that to me makes me feel, I mean, like I'm doing something, like I'm doing something right.
3: It's kind of like you, uh, you bridge the gap so.
2: because you got all
3: the people that are huge Sasquatch yeah. enthusiasts and they're very like nature inclined people that care about the environment, don't want it to be destroyed. And even if they get into the woo aspect of Sasquatch, a lot of the time they believe that they're like the protectors of nature. Right. So if you're into Sasquatch, you're not going to disrespect nature. But again, it's like, there may be a lot of rangers and different no, people right. that work in your field that, you know, may be interested in the concept, but they're not willing to get out and actually like talk about it being like a theoretical probability, right. which you kind of bridge that gap. And it's, it's awesome that you do that. And even if it is just for learning, getting kids in nature yeah. it's it's an awesome thing all along the way
2: right and i mean i like I, I try to approach it with a particular type of nuance when i'm doing like public pro this is a little different you know i can like i can open up about my like personal opinions and things with the in this setting but, you know if i'm doing a public program i try to approach it with a, a nuance that will appeal to most people you know what i mean i try to um you, you know, you're, you're always going to have that one person. Like we've got, we've always had that one person on our Facebook page that, you know, will write seven or eight completely disjointed paragraphs about why we're wrong about everything. But, you know, that's one person, you know what I mean? That's one person. Um, so yeah, I mean, almost everything is really, it's all, it's, it's almost always really positive, you know? Um, and I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Like I, we've gotten so much, I mean, I take my kids. I mean, with the, part of the reason why we talked to Crypticon is because we, we were both like, you know, letting our kids wind down a little bit in that mm. little corner. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, you know, it was like a quiet corner for our, our overstimulated kids to go to, you know, um, we drag our kids all over doing these conferences and things. Right. You know? Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's definitely opened us up to a lot. Of, uh, exposed It's exposed my kids to a lot more um, things. I mean, my my kids both have their like favorite cryptids, you know, um, their little mascot cryptids now. You same
3: know, with, uh, same so, with my uh, daughter too. And it just brings right. a sense of mysticism to kids too. Yeah. Cause in the world we live in nowadays where there's just, right. it seems like there's no mysteries left. It at least gives them some kind of hope because at the root of it, I say it all the time, but like humans need oh, to explore yeah, the world, and they want to see things. So you gotta, you gotta give them something to look forward do. to. Like something isn't discovered. So,
2: the world's so small. Yeah. I mean the world's so small now, you know, you can find the, the weather and, you know, you can find the weather in Calcutta right now in two seconds on your phone. You know, like you're, you know what I mean. You're there's there's all there is no mystery. Like we have been like technology is great, but it's also robbed us of a lot of mystery. You know, um, and I do I do really appreciate that this is you know a mysterious aspect of the universe of the world. You know of the natural world. So I really try to appreciate that.
3: So uh, <clears throat> you made reference to multiple stories that you've collect from talking to different people. Um, as far as like your concern, what are some of like the main stories that you feel have the most, uh, like backing behind them?
2: Well, um, <clears throat> so I, uh, I, I talked to a pair of fishermen once, um, at the park who to me had no reason to make up a story who had claimed the whole night they had been hearing things, you know, and they'd fish out there their whole lives, you know, it was that sort of situation. And they had, uh, the whole night they had been hearing things and they thought they'd catch a glimpse of something behind a tree. And then after dark, they were out there catfishing. So you got to, you know, you night fish for catfish. And, uh, at they, they started getting pretty large rocks hurled at them from up on the hillside. Um, and the way they described it is they weren't rolling down like something scrambled up the hillside and knocked them loose. They said that they saw it look like they uh, like a water balloon launcher. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, they, they could see them like arc out of the out of the tree line and down and hit the water. You know, they could see them do, you know, and uh, that's one of the ones that I'm like that. That one is just like the way they told it you know, neither of their stories were exactly the same. And that to me, like they, they they were both so close and so similar, but not, it's not like they rehearsed it. You know what I mean? Neither of their stories lined up just perfectly. You know what I mean? Plus your uh, Uh, fight or flight response kicks in when you're getting
3: rocks thrown at you.
2: Right. 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 So you, you misremember things. And that to me, like as soon as I heard the little discrepancies, you know, i'm like oh man this seems like a really legit story you know like both these guys and they they both kind of had that like well, we're not gonna go out here after dark anymore you know it scared us um and that's what they said the whole night they'd been on edge and then all of a sudden they started getting these rocks pelted at them from you know the tree line and that that one uh really really kind of spoke to me um <clears throat> i think we had talked last time on the last podcast uh I had heard one that didn't come from the park uh, that was a really eerie story about, a, about a, uh, a guy who grew up remembering his mom taking the, taking him and his siblings into the, into the living room of his trailer and saying there's like a thing walking around the trailer, you know, like walking around the outside of the trailer. And uh, he grew up with that. You know, he grew up with like his, his dad saying like, don't go out hunting today because that thing's been on the edge of the field. You know, so you boys stay inside because that thing's been over there. And he never gave it any thought. Like he grew up around that. And then he was like 18 or 19. And uh, he, uh, he was watching TV with one of his friends and Harry and the Hendersons was on. And he was like, oh, that's the thing. And his friend's like, what the hell are you talking about? The thing, that's Bigfoot. And he's like, no, it's the thing. You guys didn't have the thing growing up, you know. And that guy told me that story. He was from Southern Ohio, like way Southern Ohio, not not the park. But, you know. That guy told me that story, um, and that's what he said. He's like, man, I didn't read the books that I was supposed to in high school, let alone any books about Bigfoot. He's like, I didn't know what Bigfoot was. And I was sitting at my friend's house and saying, like, oh, no, the thing, like the thing that hung out in the woods. You know, you guys didn't have it. You grew up where I grew up. You didn't have the thing, you know. And uh, he had no idea that what he was looking at. He was watching goofy Well, not Goofy. I mean, that is a cinematic work of art, Uh, you know, but um, he was watching Harry Harry and the Hendersons and he said, uh, you know, oh, he had the thing. And I'm like, "Um, man, you know, who am I to tell this guy that he's making this up? Like, it does not seem like he's making it up,
3: especially if he doesn't have a name for it. So those are two.
2: Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, really such a weird, uh, such a weird story. And I, I mean, I have, uh, I have at the park, um, a map of Ohio that I let people put a pen in for sightings. If they had, a, if they've had an experience, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I try to keep an eye out. If somebody walks over and reads, you know, and puts a pen in, uh, in the map, I kind of try to talk to them. And um, you can kind of see the areas where, like, it sort of lines up with all of the research that's been done, you know. Like, if you look at, like, the concentrations of sightings, just my little map with my little demographic at Salt Fork, you know, sort of lines up with all the hot spots in Ohio. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, I get a lot from up around Minerva. Like people, you know, the Minerva Monster. I get a lot from Salt Fork and that area. Get a lot from the rugged southern part of Ohio. Um, And, you know, most people will have some story to tell. Uh, The thing that I like to look for are are consistencies between stories. For one one thing, a lot of, like, one-on-one sightings that I've been told about, like the people have told me their story, they talk about, like, the animal almost swaying. Like if it's not a, if it's a stationary animal, they talk about it like swaying back and forth, you know, well, that's actually like a mechanism out in nature. Like animals do that. I mean, have you ever seen a lizard do like push-ups? Mm-hmm. you know, like you ever seen them do that head bob thing? Like that's a, that's a mechanism to get a different perspective on, on their field of vision, you know? And it's also a lot of times it's a way to confuse predators, you know? Like if you're swaying back and forth, it's a way to distract predator, you know, like it's a way to uh, break up your outline and things like it's actually a mechanism out in nature. And the fact that that gets included in so many like standing stationary Bigfoot reports that swaying back and forth, you know, it seems to me like that would be something that they would do more so than like having, you know, I heard one theory that the reason why they're, they blur out. Is because they have like, they're able to, um, they've got like fluid in their hair that they can push out and like actually contort light. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. Like, but there's no precedence for that, that we know of in nature. You know what I mean? Wouldn't it almost make more sense that 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 they have like multiple
3: colors in their hair and they can almost like flex their muscles to kind of like have it kind of show more
2: color more than the other? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, which is something that there's precedence for. I mean, if you look at a fawn, the reason why fawns have spots is so they blend in with high grass, you know, Um, like so animals have that. But yeah, that that swain, I've gotten quite a few. So there was one up from around Coshocton where a woman said that she was letting her dog out and her dog wouldn't go off the porch. And uh, she looked up and right at the edge of the woods and a cornfield, she said it's right where their woodlot and their cornfield meet uh, she saw this thing standing there and it was like, as soon as she saw it, as soon as it like noticed that she was looking at it, it took a couple of steps back into the cornfield and then started like swaying back and forth. Like it was swaying with the corn, you know,
3: do you think that's like like, uh, a possibly a matter of them being able to see them kind of like, you know, when you drive past like a fence real quick, how you can kind of see through the fence, Do you think that movement back and forth kind of makes it so they can kind of have a better view around the trees. Or around the corn in, in particular, with yeah, that story. That's kind of what I'm thinking, you know.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what I there, look There's a precedence for that. And those those stories all always kind of stick with me. So I hope that answers your, your question.
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I know you said you only had about an hour. So I definitely appreciate you sticking around for an hour and a half. But uh, one last yeah, question, okay. I guess, before we start rolling or before we start uh, wrapping everything up is uh, have you ever actively gone out in the field and tried to like, do some squatching yourself. Like have you ever actually tried tree knocks or done anything like yourself to try to call one in or actually try to see one yourself.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I have, um, actually the only tree knock that I've ever heard again, no, no smoking gun, you know, but that was a solo outing that I did. Like I I had a, I had a tree knock and I I got it recorded. I got it on video. Um, at least I got my reaction to it. You can hear the tree knock and you, you can see me, sort of go completely blank you know what I mean <laughs> um while I'm trying to figure out what I just heard um but uh, yeah I have I've uh I've gone out um I've gone out with research local researchers here at the park um here at Salt Fork uh I've also I've got um I'm pretty close friends with some guys down in uh North Carolina we went out um uh august last year we went out to a park down there and did it's kind of a dual purpose squatching slash um rattle rattle rattlesnake search well i was also kind of looking for rattlesnakes down there but um we went out and did that we're actually planning on we're kind of planning on doing a little squatching this spring maybe in march um together like we're going out uh the thing is i i don't particularly love throwing my hat in with any particular organization um, Cause it almost forces, I mean, for all of the positivity in the Bigfoot community, man, there's a lot of infighting, uh, you know, um, there, there can be quite a bit of infighting. So I, I've haven't, I've hesitated to, to join any organization or like become re- really involved with any sort of like um, major field research like uh, that. Now I, I've been and on a few of the project zoo book um, calls with Amy, Amy boo. I don't know if you know any about anything mm-hmm. about project zoo book or Amy boo or anything. Yeah. yeah. I've been on a few. Um, I've been on a few project zoo book calls. Uh, unfortunately, I don't make them all the time just cause I'm get with, with having um, my kids in the evenings and stuff. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard for me to set aside a few hours like at that particular time in the evening this is a little easier because the kids are in bed here.
3: That's where I'm at with my but, show and um, stuff too. <laughs> it's kind of hard for
2: me. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's kind of hard sometimes, you know, and sometimes when I get off work, you know, especially in the summer when I get off work later, um, sometimes the last thing that I want to do is set through a Bigfoot meeting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're great. So I've done, I've done those that sort of active research. And like I said, I try to go to the, I try to go to the conferences and at least attend, you know, as many of the speakers and things that I can, you know, and get those perspectives. Um, I don't do a ton of research though. Um, I mean, just what I, the examples that I gave you here, um, because my job as an educator and kind of what I, what I like to gear it towards is, is that educational aspect of it. And, and, you know, like I said, I'm the, I'm the, the Bigfoot naturalist is sort of what we're, um, what I'm uh what I'm billed as anymore so I I do a lot of like synthesizing this information that I get and trying to trying to get people excited about it and uh I'm actually I've been considering uh both my wife and I've considered we, we might I think that's one of our things one of our goals for 2023 is that we're gonna maybe try to do some writing like actually maybe try to get something uh written and out there um sort of encapsulating what what We're we're doing and what I do and what we're um, what we kind of think is going on out there and and those sorts of things. So we're kind of hoping that uh, I mean, at one point I thought about starting a podcast, but then I was on like a podcast once a month anyway, and I'm like, what? Well, I can I can pretty much say everything that I want to say to someone else (laughs) rather than rather than being in charge of like editing my own podcast. I can pretty much get anything that I want to say out there, um, you know, in some capacity or another. But we've we've been considering doing some writing um, and trying to get some of that stuff out there, because, I mean, you know, people do read uh, Bigfoot stuff, you know, quite a bit. I mean, books, um, books are really one of those things. I mean, the Internet's great, but it's also full of a lot of garbage. But books um, at least have some level of like, you know, kind of like if what I write would be crap, people would tell me it's crap and not buy it. You know what I mean? Um, or they would buy it and then comment back. This is complete crap. So they're your books at least get vetted, you know? <laughs> so we uh, we've um, my wife and I both have been considering like, uh, you know, working on, working on some sort of project, maybe starting this year. Um, I'm hoping that's, and that's actually the kind of the first time that I've mentioned that, um, that we're hoping to um, maybe do a little writing this year on the subject. Um, just to see. And I, I'm not an expert by any means, but I, I don't like to consider anybody an expert in this subject. You know what I mean? But I'm not an expert in any means. I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. Um, and this is now a part of what I do. So that's what I, that's what I am bringing to the table. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, like I said, I'm considering doing a little, a little writing, uh, this year about it. We're going to maybe see, see what we can put together. So,
3: I'm actually really um, yeah, looking forward to reading bit, that, and I can't wait to read it,
2: because
3: of... at least as far as books go, I, I'm always one of those people, yeah. I love collecting books for the aspect, too, of anything on the internet could theoretically be changed, so I like having stuff in book format, right. because it's information that can never be pulled away from me, and you can look at it 30 years from now, and it's exactly right. how it was
2: written. It's the same, yeah, right.
3: So, I always like to leave on a high note for the guests, so uh, if there's any words of
2: wisdom you could bestow on the listeners, what would it be? Oh, I would say a couple of things. Uh, no matter what you're doing or where where you're at, try to set aside some time to appreciate your surroundings. I mean, you can you can find nature everywhere. You know, try to appreciate your surroundings. You can be in a concrete you know a concrete jungle. You can be in Chicago. You can be in Columbus. You can be in Detroit. Try to appreciate your surroundings. Uh, try to find nature in everything. Also. I would recommend that everyone set aside time to grow something. Grow something that makes you happy. Grow something that you can use. Grow something that makes you happy. Like grow, you know, plant a windowsill garden. If you live in an apartment, you know, grow something. Grow some herbs for your kitchen, you know. Um, But tending to a garden, no matter how big or how small, like you are, you are part, actively participating in, in nature, you know, set aside some time to, uh, to actually grow something, no matter what your circumstances are, you know, set aside time to appreciate your surroundings, appreciate nature, appreciate the randomness and the cosmic, like the cosmic unlikelihood of your existence, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> appreciate that and set aside some time to grow something, you know, um, I mean, personally, my my like personal philosophy is that of a hobbit, you know. I uh, I, I I could I, you know that's my my ideal retirement is like retiring to the shire where I can just grow a garden and smoke a pipe on my porch. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's my that's that's my ideal retirement. You know. Um, but set aside the time set aside time to grow something that makes you happy and participate in in nature and recognize that you are part of nature, that you, we are not separate from nature, no matter how hard we try. So I think those are my words of wisdom.
3: See, I always have a theory too, on this one, that no matter what people have to admit that they have a draw to nature, because no matter whose house it is, no matter where you are, everybody has pictures of the woods, they have pictures of the forest. So rather than just sitting around in your house, looking at (laughs) pictures of it, get out there and experience it yourself. That's right. But for uh, anybody that enjoyed this awesome conversation, uh, where can they come and find you at? And where can they come and find all the videos that you do for uh, your park?
2: (coughs) Sorry. My my computer died. Um, I didn't have it plugged in all the way um, (laughs) while we were talking. So my ancient laptop died. Yeah. So uh, to find me personally, it's um, on on Instagram. I'm John that's my, uh, um, pretty easy to find. I'm also tagged in quite a bit of Sasquatch tracks stuff cause I'm friends with those guys. So, uh, so you can find me through the, through, um, uh, through their link. Um, but I, uh, I'm pretty easy to find it. So you can look me up. Um, as far as park stuff goes, if you're interested in doing any, um, any outings at salt fork, um, Salt Fork State Park, if you just look that up on Facebook and follow us, that's probably your best bet for up-to-date information about nature hikes and things like that. Up the ODNR's State Park website, my calendar of events and everything gets posted on there. Um, and those are kind of going to be your two best outlets. But then also, um, any any of the conferences in Ohio, West Virginia, any any of the Bigfoot conferences, I'll i tend to make appearances there. So if you want to track me down in person, I'm usually at usually at one of those things. I've got a um got a pretty noticeable mustache; it's kind of hard to miss. So, um you know, uh, you can track me down in person pretty easy that way. Um, but yeah, anybody that's interested can look me up on Instagram, ask me questions. Um, I usually make contact with quite a few people. Um, and like I said, that is. John. Um and it's, uh, I'm sure you can put up the link because it's, my last name's kind of a mouth, but yeah, you can check out, uh, honestly, there's not a ton of Bigfoot stuff on my Instagram, um, mostly it's pictures of critters and nature and stuff like that, but <laughs> um, I do like to interact with people on there, so uh, feel free to look me up.
3: I uh, appreciate you making the time to come on the show today, man. And this has been an awesome conversation and I'm really looking forward to having you come back on so we can get even more into the naturalist stuff. But I know everybody wanted to hear the Bigfoot aspect, so I had to throw that in there, but we can have you come back on and we can just get a full on episode about all of your uh, different fascinations with nature and being a naturalist.
2: That sounds great. That sounds awesome. Well, thanks. Thank you.
3: If anyone is interested in getting a hold of me, uh, you can do so through email. The email is inquiries of all at outlook.com. Uh, another way you can get a hold of me is you can always hit me up on social media. I'm the most active on Instagram, so if you shoot me a message on there, that'll probably be your best bet. Uh, you can also go to the link tree, and up at the top, there's a submission form. Uh, fill that out, it'll go directly to my email but I say it on every single show. More often than not, it seems like all of my emails go to the spam or junk folder. So make sure you keep an eye out there because I do respond to every single message. It's just a matter of them not getting thrown in and mixed in with all of the random junk mails. So, But everything that I've mentioned, all available under the link tree. That's L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash increase of Our Reality Podcast. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.